This Week in Oklahoma Politics is sponsored by Oklahoma State Medical Association, physicians dedicated to providing and increasing access to health care for all Oklahomans. More on its vision and mission at okmed.org. I'm Michael Cross, host of the KOSU Daily Podcast. Every weekday, I bring you the biggest Oklahoma stories of the day with reporting and analysis from our team of journalists and partners. Get the news you need to start your day in less than 10 minutes. Find the KOSU Daily in your podcast feed and subscribe now. For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel. Severe storms over the weekend resulted in a state of emergency declaration. Now, normally this news wouldn't be mentioned on our show, but this time is different. It turns out the leader of the state Senate, Greg Treat, had to sign the declaration because Governor Stitt and Lieutenant Governor Matt Pinnell were not in Oklahoma. In fact, Treat signed it just an hour after being informed he was the acting governor. Ryan, what happened here? You know, I think we need to give Governor Stitt and <laughs> Lieutenant Governor Pinnell, let's give them a break. I mean, who among us hasn't gone out of town on vacation and forgot something? You know, did, did, <laughs> did you leave the garage door open? Did you turn off the stove? Did you tell the president pro temp that he's governor? I mean, these things happen. Uh, it is, uh, but <laughs> you know, in seriousness, in seriousness, it is. I'm going to beg to differ uh, here. In a yeah. Minute. No, I well, I, you know, that's all in jest because it is an incredibly, uh, you know, just a dereliction of uh, of responsibility for for state leadership to leave their post and not mm-hmm. let the person beneath them know that uh, that they're in charge. Uh, apparently, the governor didn't let Lieutenant Governor Pinnell know that Pinnell only knew because he had other sources that told him that the governor was in Paris at an air show, which that sounds awesome. Paris air show. Yeah. Uh, nobody invited me to that. Uh, yeah. So he didn't tell the lieutenant governor. Lieutenant governor only knew because somebody else told him. And then the lieutenant governor didn't tell uh, President Pro Temp Greg Treat that he was out. And so for 48 hours, Oklahoma had a governor that did not know he was governor. Uh, right. That's pretty wild. Uh, and. Um, you know, I will say, uh, kudos to Greg Treat. Uh, you know, here's a guy who, uh, he's, I mean, he's been acting governor before this has happened before, uh, not nearly in this kind of a situation where we have a real emergency. And of of course our thoughts go out to everybody in particular in Northeastern Oklahoma that's dealing with this in Tulsa. Uh, it's very serious as, as we're taping people still without power, people dying because they don't have power. Um, this is a very serious situation. And, uh, and I think the president pro temp treat stepped up to that situation. He was, he was immediately in Tulsa within an hour of the governor putting out a press release saying that, uh, that Greg treat should, uh, put out a, uh, a, you know, that he should, uh, within an uh, yeah. uh, pardon me, within an hour of learning that he was governor, he signed the declaration, uh, the emergency declaration. And then the governor, after, uh, uh Greg treat signs that puts out a press release calling on. Greg Treat to do what he'd already done an hour ago. Uh, it shows just the total lack of communication here. Uh, the Attorney General Gittner Drummond has said that there needs to be a change in state law that requires leadership to inform uh, those in the line of succession uh, that they are going to be acting mm-hmm. in an executive capacity and that they're going to be gone and when they're going to be back. Um, and that that's a change that needs to happen because 
frankly, the idea that we were going through one of the worst natural disasters in the state with a governor that did not know he was governor is unacceptable. Neva. Uh, absolutely. And I, I think it's the, it's the timeline that's, that really is baffling. Right. I mean, the governor left on Friday for the Paris Air Show last Friday. Uh, that's a, that's a, an event that uh, governors even pa- before Governor Stitt attend mm-hmm. because it is something where they go to uh, try to recruit international business, aerospace being something that uh, uh, is uh, front and center in Oklahoma. So no surprise. So the governor's left on Friday. Uh, we have this uh, major storm on uh, Saturday and Sunday. And at that time, um, Matt Pinnell was the acting governor and um, and had to know that. So the question I think is, the, the, in his timeline, uh, he came to the Capitol on Monday and chaired the Board of Equalization um, a meeting and, um, or, or one of the board meetings, it may, have, may, have, may not have been equalization, but he came, chaired this meeting, and then left uh, early Monday afternoon, about 2.30, and had not signed the, emer- the emergency uh, declaration at that point. He knew what had gone on. He lives in Tulsa. Right. Mm-hmm. So why are you leaving town um, to go to Georgia for some preset uh, conference or meeting when you have this going on? And furthermore, why would the person in that position not as a courtesy and a professional courtesy uh, to take care of the people's business in Oklahoma, make sure that the next in succession, which would be pro tem treat, know and be able to move forward on whatever has to be done. Mm-hmm. That's one part of the scenario. The other part is what you described, Ryan, in that uh, the governor's office feeling the need to put out this news release in the midst of all of this when probably at that point, a lot of folks in all of the camps knew what was going on, uh, just seemed uh, unnecessary and almost uh, pointed to some pettiness between this uh, skirmishing that has gone on between the governor and the pro tem during the, uh, during the session. So I think all of this doesn't speak well for anyone in those elective offices. I think it is something you're right. I mean, I think lawmakers are already saying it's time to follow what uh, A.G. Drummond has already laid out, and that is, I guess we're going to have to pass a statute and formalize what should be just normal conduct in any type of uh, any type of business, any type of uh, entity that has a structure and an organization, much less the government of the state of Oklahoma. So I think uh, I think it's regrettable that we're at this, you know, that we're at this point where we're having this conversation because it was so unnecessary mm-hmm. and none of these folks are first-time players on the scene. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're all political animals, they're all political elected officials, all uh, have been on the job for some time. So uh, and as you say, Ryan, I mean, the pro tem treat has been acting governor uh, in previous instances as has Lieutenant Governor Pinnell when he becomes acting governor when the uh, governor's out of state. So, um, you know, it's something that's under the radar for most Oklahomans. Uh, you're, from our vantage point, I mean, when we think about the, the 200,000 uh, plus customers, which is far more than 200,000 impacted in those homes mm-hmm. and families, uh, and what they've had to deal with for the past week, uh, it's, it's something we need to fix and fix quickly, and hopefully we don't have a situation like this any time in the future. But it does, it does seem like from the reports that we have that within hours, within the hour of learning that he was acting governor, 
uh, Senator Treat stepped up. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Wednesday, he actually went yeah. to Tulsa. Once yeah. he realized he was in charge, he did what a governor's doing. So why does this begs the question? If, if governor Stitt was at this thing on Friday, the storm happened Saturday night and he, 72 hours later, he's sending out press releases, begging Stitt to, why is he not on a plane back to Oklahoma? That's a good question. I think that that's a very good question. I, or I Lieutenant think that, Governor Pinnell. Or Lieutenant Governor, any, you know, you've got both, you have two uh, individuals that Oklahomans elected to these statewide positions to do these jobs. Neither one of them are there. Uh, in the meantime, Greg Treat is going around Tulsa, uh, doing a, a, you know, doing oh, what doing a, doing government. what a governor does yeah. and, 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 and frankly, looking like a governor doing it. And the other thing is, uh, Governor Stitt at one point said that he'd been in communication, close communication with, uh, uh, PSO CEO about, uh, kind of overseeing what was going on with the crews that were being brought in and how they would go about restoring power. I mean, the, the, the protocols that would be put in place. So he was engaged even from across the, uh, across the continent and, and uh, following this. So it wasn't that, that there's not this instant communication. I mean, we have, we have everything in place for things to occur and, and disasters to be addressed rapidly, but it takes the signature. It takes certain actions by the governor or the acting governor to put some of these pieces in motion. And, and I agree with you, once Greg Treat knew it was on his desk, it was, in, it was uh, for him to uh, execute and take care of, he did that and was on the scene in Tulsa in communication with Mayor Bynum and others. And, uh, you know, and one has to uh, uh, applaud that effort because mm-hmm. that's exactly what was needed at the time. U.S. Supreme Court is letting a crucial tribal sovereignty law stand despite a legal challenge. By a 7-2 decision, the justices rejected the plaintiff's arguments and kept the more than 40-year-old federal law Indian Child Welfare Act intact. Neva, were you surprised by this ruling? Um, yeah, I don't know that I had uh, a feeling one way or the other. I think it was something that people were watching for and knew would be uh, uh, highly impactful and were waiting for the court to decide. And it was uh, the 7-2 ruling was strong. And I think uh, in the, in, in the uh, uh, majority opinion, uh, Justice uh, uh, Amy Comey Barrett, uh, she wrote uh, that basically uh, the Congress's power to legislate uh, with respect to Indians was well-established and broad. And, and, and the court uh, f- strongly upheld that. Uh, so, and went on to say that even when it affects family law, which is an area that primarily is a state responsibility, in this instance, uh, that the Constitution, in her words, I think, didn't erect a firewall around family law. So this is something um, I thought it was interesting in kind of reading through much of what occurred with the, with the court's opinion. You had Justice Gors- Gorsuch, um, writing an opinion about equally long to uh, uh, Comey Bryant's that was, or Barrett's, that was 34 pages for her, 30, I think, eight or nine pages uh-huh. for him. I mean, you know, significant. Uh-huh. But when it came up from the, from the um, uh, Fifth District, I mean, I think the, the document was three or 400 pages long. So it's very complex, as they talk about, uh, delves into many subjects and, and some that will probably come back before the court in the future. I mean, not everything was fully resolved, but the issue at hand, uh, the court uh, rejected the claims that basically that Congress had exceeded uh, its authority when it passed the law more than 40 years ago. So that's where it stands, and I think uh, there'll be a lot of continued unpacking of, of the court's opinions. The two 
dissenting justices were Justice Alito and Justice Thomas, and they equally came off strong on their assertions on the other side, that Congress had uh, far outreached its uh, uh, place in terms of what it had done with the law. But uh, in this instance, we know now where the court stands, and we'll see what moves forward. All right. I think the 7-2 decision is powerful. Uh, and and the, the two dissenting justices are justices that were going to dissent. I mean, we knew that Justices Alito uh, and Thomas were going to dissent. Uh, it, it's tough to read those briefs when you're out on you know corporate uh, fishing trip junkets. Uh, you know, it's, it's hard to read all those things. Uh, so we knew that those two guys were going to dissent. But the fact that uh, you, you have seven justices that voted to protect ICWA, the Indian Child Welfare Act, um, is, is very powerful. Uh, and as Neva said, they arrived at that conclusion um, only by answering the question of the anti-commandeering doctrine, uh, which is uh, basically uh, a portion of the Tenth Amendment that prohibits the federal government uh, from uh, forcing states to adopt or enforce federal law. And so the challenge by some of these plaintiffs was that the that ICWA required state courts to do these things uh, to um, uh, enforce federal law. The court said no. Uh, that's that's absolutely not the way this works, and in fact, um, you know, this is just a facet of our of our system of federalism, uh, where uh, state courts have to follow federal law all the time. Uh, that's there's nothing new under the sun here. Um, and but they didn't decide the issue of um, you know things like whether race or whether uh, tribal membership was based on political uh, determinations or racial determinations. Uh, tribes have urged the court that tribal membership is a political decision right. um, and that it is a political act. And it's, it's a, an individual tribe's uh, ability, their sovereign right to be able to decide who is and who isn't a member of their tribe. Uh, and it has nothing to do with race or it may have something to do with race, uh, but it's, it's a political act. Um, and that's where they've been urging the courts to move. The court didn't answer that question. So, I mean, if this does come back up, um, and they didn't answer it because they didn't want to answer it. They didn't answer it because they didn't believe that the parties here had the standing or the legal right to bring that case uh, to answer that question. So if this is going to be challenged in the future, I imagine that the opponents of ICWA are going to try to find plaintiffs uh, that they do believe have standing and are going to raise that issue and say that uh, tribal membership uh, and the enforcement of ICWA uh, is race-based and is a violation of the Equal Protection Clause. I don't think that the court's going to buy that. Uh, I think that we saw a strong signal from the court uh, that this is going to happen. Justice Gorsuch, in his opinion, I mean, he has really become uh, the voice on federal Indian law uh, on the United States Supreme Court, uh, gave a powerful recount of why ICWA was necessary to begin with, uh, everything from uh, removing children from homes to federal efforts to uh, leading up even well into you know, this last century of destroying tribal families and tribal culture. Uh, and trying to extinguish those tribes uh, and their culture and their language and, and everything about them um, and how ICWA is meant to protect those tribes and their culture moving forward. Powerful, powerful concurring opinion. You know, it's interesting, too, Justice Kavanaugh talking about the uh, the issue of equal protection. I mean, he basically stated that, uh, that the courts and ultimately the Supreme Court uh, would be able to address the equal protection issue, but this wasn't going to be uh, the time and place to do it. Uh, it had to be properly raised in, 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 another, um, in another suit. So we'll see, as we've seen for really the past decade, a number of uh, issues that have 
come before the high court that deal with uh, uh, tribal issues, with Native American uh, issues that uh, that have risen to the level that the that the high court had to make that decision. So uh, I don't think this is going to stop with this decision. I think we have others that will follow and many that uh, may piggyback on this very case. Officials with the land office faced tough questions from lawmakers over an investment scheme. The questions came after the Legislative Office of Fiscal Transparency presented draft findings over the land office's $8 million investment in a local company buying houses in a rent-to-own program for residents who can't qualify for a mortgage. Ryan, what's the issue here? Well, the issue is, uh, is the is this, uh, Commission on Land Office, uh, is it using these resources for the best interest of Oklahomans, and in particular, Oklahoma education? Um, you know, we're talking about uh, an entity that has billions of dollars in assets, uh, that provides hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue from the, uh, from the benefit of those assets every year into common education in the state of Oklahoma. Um, you know, here, what were the question, and just... I'll back up for a moment and say the Legislative Office of Fiscal Transparency Loft, which was created by the legislature in an effort to uh, have a legislative uh, look at the uh, workings of state agencies, departments, commissions, um, they this is just one of a number of uh, investigative reports going back to even the, the, uh, the Department of uh, uh, Wildlife uh, whenever they were looking at, um, you know, the uh, or the the state parks uh, issue. The tourism. Yeah, I'm sorry, tourism. Yeah, Department of Tourism, whenever they were looking at the state, I feel like Rick Perry up here. It's like, <laughs> I was going to say, it's like there were three state agencies. <laughs> uh, Department of Tourism, and going back to, to the barbecue scandal. And um, this, and, and they're, they're led by uh, uh, former Representative Mike Jackson, mm-hmm. um, and they have really provided lawmakers with powerful information about how these agencies uh, and commissions work. And this is no different. Um, and Asking important questions about, you know, if we're if the state of Oklahoma is investing in real estate uh, in these areas with the funds from the commission, uh, well, that real estate is no longer eligible for property taxes. And so, if you take that property out of the property tax roll, then even though we're generating money for common education, uh, we're also undermining the ability of that local property tax assessment to go into the local schools. And they demonstrated in some of those school districts that it could mean over a million dollars in lost revenue every year. And so, some of their suggestions were. You know, we need to move into more, you know, securities-led, uh, uh, um, you know, uh, public securities, uh, maybe move away from real estate holdings because of that public policy of not undermining the, the tax rolls. Uh, but also said that if we are going to be investing in these things, we need to be investing in publicly traded companies uh, because these privately traded companies, you know, we, we're essentially acting like a private equity firm as mm-hmm. the state of Oklahoma, and it's very difficult for any of us uh, to have a sense of what's actually going on there. And that's all especially important now that we have an OSBI, an ongoing OSBI investigation into past dealings within the uh, commissioners, uh, among commissioners of the land office, where they approved a contract that could potentially have benefited individually one of the members of the commission, the secretary, who then resigned uh, and led to a a contract to a a corporation that has only been around for a few months before, uh, maybe four months before they got this contract for $8 million a month. I don't know if they still have the contract or not. They're getting $8 million a month to help advise investments. Uh, That's that's kind of wild. And so... Loft has basically said, we're not a private equity firm. Uh, we're the state of Oklahoma. We need to be making more sound investments. 
uh, I think that we'll see legislation resulting from this report. Neva. I absolutely think there'll be legislation, and I think the role that Loft is playing is exactly what lawmakers intended when mm-hmm. the when they put it in place. It allows for the deeper dive into these agencies, into uh, issues that arise that may come from internal communication or may, may come from just the kind of the path they go down. But clearly there are red flags that have come up, and uh, as we know, and as you say, Ryan, there's an ongoing investigation started with the OSBI. It has it's now in attorney general, the attorney general's office. So we have these former um, directors, uh, at least one, that uh, uh, there's still questions swirling around. And in this instance, kind of bringing the new uh, CLO director to the table and talking with these lawmakers and loft, um, there there is clearly uh, some differences of opinion, as you say. I mean, what uh, what what uh, does this agency? Uh, what is it really tasked to do and what is its mission? And when you think about um, the investments that we're talking about, I mean, the school lands, uh, their investments total more than $2 billion. I mean, this is a huge, uh, a huge entity. It means, uh, I think, over $100 million, $125 million, uh, for education each year uh, coming, out of, uh, coming out of those funds uh, for uh, school districts across Oklahoma. So it's something that uh, it, no one can really just uh, kind of gloss over. There has, mm-hmm. to be, there has to be some real um, oversight and some real intentional looking at what they're doing and why. And I think this is why even uh, this past session, uh, Senator Casey Murdoch, he had a bill. It went through the Senate. I think it stalled in the House. But basically, uh, it uh, required the uh, advice and consent of the Senate on the governor's appointee to be the CLO director. But it also allowed for the legislature to fire the director uh, with two-thirds vote in both chambers. So I think I think lawmakers want to get a handle on what's going on. This agency is certainly going to continue to be in the crosshairs. And I think there will be a give and take in terms of uh, what, what the recommendations that have been made by CLO and what the rec- recommendations that have been made by LOFT are. But it, uh, it no doubt will be front and center in the next session in terms of a discussion point. Last week, we spoke about Governor Stitt giving his endorsement to presidential hopeful Ron DeSantis. Well, a recent article from the Oklahoman talked about how past endorsements have yet to result in cabinet positions. Neva, do you think this will change if DeSantis makes it to the White House? No one knows. I mean, certainly it I mean, we can <clears throat> we can look at these storylines with interest. And I mean, we can go back to every of I think the, the, the article that you're uh, talking about, uh, Michael, uh, I think went back five or six governors. Mm-hmm. And certainly governors are prominent uh, elected officials in every state that anyone running for uh, the running for the White House is going to uh, look for their support, particularly if they're in their party. I mean, uh, so that's where that's where in this instance, I think uh, Governor Stitt clearly appears to have handicapped the race, decided that uh, Ron DeSantis is a, a man he wanted to jump on board full throttle early. And um, and that typically is kind of the, the storyline that uh, you you go down if you want to be in the mix mm-hmm. and in the conversation if someone is elected uh, and becomes uh, the next president of the United States, then it's your friends and particularly your friends that got on with you early uh, that, uh, that you remember that are in a position uh, oftentimes they have the credentials and the and the credibility the stature to be able to uh, 
be in those high-level positions, cabinet or other. Um, I think we remember that Mary Fallon was, she was interviewed uh, when Donald Trump was elected mm-hmm. uh, president, uh, that the cabinet appointment didn't, didn't go anywhere. But I thought it was fascinating uh, back a couple of months ago that Governor Stitt on a online political um, uh, uh, interview said that he would in fact be interested in a cabinet position and specifically said he would like the energy position that would be the one if he were you know if he could pick one that would be his pick so um, we'll see how all of this shakes out moving forward like we talked about last week it's very early in the process and certainly a lot of a lot of players uh, on the on the political landscape uh, looking to looking and running right now for president so um, it's a it's an early early pick by one person. We'll see what happens with some of these other um, political folks in Oklahoma. Both on uh, you know obviously even on the Democrat side. I mean you can speak to that, Ryan. But uh, you would have to wonder uh, uh, anyone out challenging Joe Biden at this point, whether it's uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. or anyone else, uh, they're going to come looking for uh, folks that are willing to sign up and uh, be on the team. So it's uh, it's political inside baseball. But I think for our listeners and folks that follow this with interest uh it's something that's always a good story to read well biden apparently has an opponent in the tiger king who has registered to run as a democrat <laughs> how could i forget that i mean for the record i i have not endorsed the tiger king uh he has not offered me a cabinet position uh and and i and i would not accept uh in, in any way whatsoever uh, interesting you know the governor said that he was interested in secretary of energy uh, and this is going to be two rick perry mentions in a single podcast so uh, let me write that know, down so here we go. This, you know, banner, banner day for Rick Perry. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm sure that his his Google uh, views just went way up now. Uh, they've been lagging for a while. Uh, he took the energy position after Donald Trump offered it to him. He was governor of Texas, uh, runs for president, doesn't win, uh, and then Trump appoints him secretary of energy. And uh, I, I think Governor Perry was really excited because he comes from this oil and gas state. And then he gets there, and uh, staffers at the Department of Energy. Uh, have this really uh, uncomfortable conversation with him where they're saying, yeah, so we don't do so much with oil and gas. Uh, we're really here to manage and protect the nation's nuclear stockpile of weapons and, and nuclear energy. Um, yeah, so this doesn't have a whole lot to do with you know, drilling on, on federal lands or anything like that. That's much more you know, Department EPA. of the Interior uh, or EPA. Yeah. Uh, and you know, to his credit, Governor Stitt said that he would also look at Department of Interior, but he said his real preference was for energy. So, I mean, you know, the governor's got this, you know, really real interest in, in nuclear energy and nuclear stockpile uh, that, you know, he just doesn't get a chance to talk about as governor of Oklahoma. Uh, so that's an uh, interesting way to put that out there. Um, I think that uh, you're right. If you're early in the game, uh, you have an opportunity to, to write, uh, you know, at least have an opportunity to have a conversation after an election. If you've got any sort of credibility whatsoever, in, in a lot of these cases, you know, Rick Perry didn't know anything about you know, nuclear energy, but you've got career civil servants, thank God for career civil servants, that do understand how these agencies work. Uh, and uh, the, the cabinet secretaries, if they're smart, uh, will surround themselves with smart people and not get in the way. Uh, and really, you know, try to, you know, you know be more of a uh, like a, a manager in a dugout uh, than them trying to play first base. Uh, so 
that's that's where I think that you know even even if Governor Stitt doesn't know anything about that, you know he could be potentially up there. I think Mary Fallon probably dodged a bullet uh, by not getting appointed anything in the Trump administration. I think that uh, you know history will be kinder to her because of that, because that she you know you know left office and you know has just been a, a private citizen in the state of Oklahoma instead of being part of that dumpster fire that took office in 2016. And you know Scott Pruitt's reputation wasn't helped because of that. I mean he's he would have been in a better situation right now if he had never been EPA secretary. Um, but it's not just about that individual that makes the endorsement getting an appointment. Uh, they'll have influence on everything from you know other issues, you know, U.S. attorneys, um, federal judges. Um, you know there are appointments that are that aren't in the news all the time that are still very important that aren't even necessarily based in Washington D.C. Uh, and are oftentimes based in a state. So we've got a lot of federal appointees here in the state of Oklahoma. The, you know, a governor endorsing early, um, even if they don't get a job, they're going to have the ability to help other people get a job. And in politics, that's often even better. You know, and it's interesting thinking back to Governor Frank Keating. I mean, he was an early supporter of then-Governor George W. Bush when he ran for president. Mm-hmm. Um, he was on the short list um, for vice presidential consideration when they were uh, making that decision. Uh, he didn't get picked. Uh, the guy running the committee to make the selection, Dick Cheney, was ultimately on the ticket. He picked himself. Uh, but, uh, but what you had after that was this great discussion that, uh, that he was kind of the heir apparent and locked in to be attorney general. And once again, that didn't happen. Um, a lot of speculation, a lot of uh, published accounts at the time about uh, uh, different things that may have scuttled that. But the long and the short of it is going into this long game there are there's nothing to predict other than it's going to be unpredictable and so i think it does make for fascinating watching from the political sidelines mm-hmm. but uh, uh, and i think people will be paying attention to uh, to these folks like uh, governor stitt and others who are out on the campaign trail probably at some point for uh, their pick, Governor DeSantis, and see how that works because sometimes uh, it can be it can bode well for you, and other times it can be um, it can probably impede your ability to kind of move on up based on performance. And so uh, it's a it's a rigorous game, and there's a lot of uh, a lot of things that shake out along the way. And at the end of all of it, unpredictability is the is the key word to remember. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at donate.kosu.org. This Week in Oklahoma Politics is sponsored by Oklahoma State Medical Association, physicians dedicated to providing and increasing access to health care for all Oklahomans. More on its vision and mission at okmed.org.